when you're earlier in your career, you have this feeling like this is going to be the last time that I'm going to have this opportunity to intersect with this shiny object. And the longer you stick around, the longer you realize that those shiny objects will continue to manifest. And you just need to wait for the one that's right for you. a milestone episode for Rough Cut this week. This is our first Oscar winner. It's very exciting, Jenny. Extremely exciting. Extremely exciting. And it's also a first because our guest is purely a producer. You know, so often the lines are blurred and people are DP directors or producer directors or the infamous predator (laughs) never (laughs) how could you even say the word no but indeed he's he's a producer and a damn good one at that tell us who, who do we have on today so we've got glenn zipper on his work is very wide ranging he's produced a sports documentary called undefeated which won the oscar for best documentary in 2011 Uh, He produced a docu-series for Netflix called Dogs, which came out last year. And he recently produced a two-part documentary about Muhammad Ali, which premiered on HBO last month. Mm. And I've got to say, I feel like I'm the only person left who hasn't seen Dogs. And now, after listening to this really fascinating, wonderful interview, I desperately cannot wait to see it. Oh, yeah. You need to see it. It's, (laughs) It's incredible. And he comes from a pretty unusual background for like a Hollywood producer. Mm -hmm. He actually grew up in New Jersey and he was a criminal prosecutor. Mm. Look at him now, right? It was, yeah, it was like a mid-career switch and it really obviously worked out for him. And so we get into kind of like how he got his foot in the door when he got to L.A., And I found the part where y'all were talking about why he left and where his uh, life kind of led him. Just the idea of, you know, not to sound trite, but following your bliss and actually giving something up because you found something else that makes you happier. Very inspiring. Yeah, super inspiring and really hard to do. And now that he's at such an established place in his career, he gave a lot of really great advice about how how directors should approach producers with projects and with pitches, like what they should come prepared with and how they can really package their film to make it attractive to a producer like him. Mm-hmm. Fascinating and extremely valuable. Yeah, a lot of really valuable things to get into. And I really, really enjoyed this interview with Glenn. So let's just get into it. Let's do it. This is Rough Cut. Glenn, thank you so much for coming on. Before this interview, I was looking into your history and, you know, I was already familiar with some of your work. I had watched Dogs and I'd seen a couple of your films, but I had no idea that you worked as a criminal prosecutor uh, before you became a filmmaker. How did you end up in documentary filmmaking? It's a long story that um, I'm still trying to perfect the short version of, but I will do my best for you. I one day coming home from work, uh, cross paths with a straight pit bull puppy, and that is where it all began, believe it or not. 
my journey with that puppy took me to the animal shelter. Um, and when I dropped the dog off at the animal shelter, I said, the dog's going to be okay now. Right. And they said, no, we'll give the dog it's three days and then probably that's it. And I didn't quite understand what that meant because I hadn't previously spent any time in an animal shelter and quickly came to understand that meant in three days they were going to euthanize the dog. Uh, I had a sudden existential crisis. I felt I had to do something about, you know, I had looked in the eyes of this puppy and had brought him to this place and I wasn't going to allow him to be subjected to that fate. And I think it was three or four days later that I turned in my prosecutor's badge and started volunteering at the animal shelter. And after about six months, I realized that I was actually happy and I hadn't been happy as a prosecutor. And that made me think to myself that I needed to remain in that space and remain happy for as long as possible. And that wasn't going to happen at the animal shelter. And it certainly wasn't going to happen going back to the prosecutor's office. And what I'd always wanted to do with my life was tell stories. It's just that I happened to come from a family where I wasn't made to feel like that was a realistic option. But at that point, I was an adult. And I said, I need to make my own decisions and not be defined by what other people think my destiny is. And I loaded up my things and drove out to Los Angeles and Eventually, after getting a lot of doors slammed in my face, one day I got the opportunity to work in somebody's documentary department and uh, I was off to the races from there. I want to go back to, I, I want to understand more like the, the switch from, you know, moving from New Jersey to Los Angeles. Like, how did you even get your foot in the door into the filmmaking industry with, with no experience? In my effort to make a long story short, I fast forwarded past that part, uh, but I will <laughs> now. The important uh, part. I will, yes, I will now dive into the important part. So, uh, not surprisingly, I met with a tremendous amount of failure. Uh, you know, I didn't know anyone, I didn't have any experience, I didn't have any connections. So no one was willing to give me that opportunity. There were a couple of people who were willing to give me a shot working at a business affairs capacity at a few companies because I was a lawyer, but I knew that that would have been um, essentially a black hole, the gravity of which I never would have escaped. So I said, I can't do that. I need to get a creative position somewhere. And it just didn't happen. And I met two really wonderful, accomplished women who were running a charity that brought... Um, homeless dogs into at-risk schools to work with at-risk kids. And these kids were the same population of kids that I was dealing with as a prosecutor when I was assigned to uh, juvenile. And when I was a prosecutor, we tried many things to intervene in these kids' lives sh short of sending them away to uh, jail uh, and not very much worked. And it was really remarkable how these dogs did work and how these dogs did change these kids' lives. And so I went to work for their charity and just happened to be that one of the one of their husbands was a successful producer. And after about two years of working the charity, the guy that was running his documentary unit was returning home to the UK and he needed to replace him. And he said, would you be interested in having his job? And I, I showed up for work and my long journey began on that day. So you leave the shelter. How did you land that first job? I mean, it just seems like it's it's such a career pivot. I think everybody would want to know how you even get your your foot in the door. Well, the husband of uh, the, one of the women who ran the charity, he was on the board of the charity, so I was constantly interfacing with him. And we'd have plenty of conversations about uh, film and 
I think he was able to identify that I had a tremendous passion for film and much less knowledge of film than I thought I had. So I think he at least identified that I was someone who could potentially, if well counseled, learn how to be a producer. But I, I did have that one intangible that you either have or you don't, which is that passion. Um, Mm -hmm. and something that you would do anything you needed to do in order to pursue. And I think he made the mental equation for himself that if I can add the knowledge component to this guy's passion, I might have a really good executive. Hmm. Do you think that he was taking a big risk making that decision? I mean, obviously it's worked out, but yeah, I think so. I think I think you know he's a very successful guy, and so I think if it didn't work out with me, he would have been fine. I think he just would have had a little bit of egg on his face internally because I'm sure there were some other people working in the company who said, "What are you doing?" There's you know 300 people who are more qualified than this guy, and you know when, why do we need to devote the bandwidth to teaching this this guy anything when we could have other people that could hit the ground running? And he had no incentive to give me a break. I mean, like I, I wasn't his nephew. I hadn't done him any special favors. I think he just was a good human being who identified that passion and he wanted to see if he could reward that passion. And I think if I revealed myself to be not very proficient at the job, I probably wouldn't have lasted very long regardless of his willingness to help me. Hmm. So can you describe the that first day at the production company like what were you feeling well i I could describe it in a word it was a disaster um i had a week's overlap with the the gentleman who i was replacing and in that week he was supposed to hand the baton to me and show me the ropes and on that first day he took me into a conference room and there's a whiteboard in the conference room and he drew three columns on the conference board, various deals that I need to be aware of and all their permutations and players and more people than you could count and more deal structures and matrices than I'd ever seen in my time as, as an attorney. And my head was just swimming from the moment I sat down in that chair. And about halfway through that first column, I was overwhelmed with anxiety. But I said, thought to myself, all right, I'm a reasonably intelligent person. If I just put my mind to it, I can figure this stuff out. And this is like what goes into making a film? They were the deals for various films that were all in some state of negotiation. And for any one deal, there might have been eight or nine points in controversy. And then on each individual deal, there were players, you know, we had the, whoever the financier was going to be, other producing partners, the directing talents, the actual subjects of the film that had their own issues and requirements and obstacles. And it just felt like absolutely overwhelming. Like, how do you manage all of this and get everyone pointed in the same direction, you know, the proverbial herding of cats? It was just a lot. And about halfway through the second uh, column, I was overwhelmed with just existential anxiety. And by the third column, I, I literally checked out. I was going to quit. And I just wanted to be polite and let him finish. And even though I had resolved to quit, by the time he got down to the bottom of the third column, I did feel relieved just because it was over. And then he turned around, he looked at me, looked back at the whiteboard, he pressed a button, and then the whiteboard automatically receded to the left and was replaced by a brand new clean whiteboard. 
And he drew three new columns. And I, I literally almost fell out of such a performance. Did he plan this? No, that, that's sort of what was so Christopher guessed about it all. It was, it was so perfunctory. It was like he had done this every day and there was nothing absurd about it at all. It was one um, of those, you know. You don't think off. he was just trying to like uh, punk me, intimidate you? Or no, no. It he was, was like a, lo- a hazing thing. No, he was a lovely guy. It was the reality of what I needed to to learn, you know, in a short yeah. amount of time. And but it was it was absolutely a, like it was almost out of the office. Like I wanted to look into the camera and just be like, <laughs> "Is this real?" And. Uh, cut to a side interview yes exactly exactly and i and i did it was didn't really think i was going to quit and that night i called one of the women who had facilitated my introduction to the producer and and i was really looking for her permission to quit because i didn't want to embarrass her and um she must have heard something in my voice and she said listen can i call you back and i said sure and then she never called me back and to this day i'm sure she knew exactly what she was doing and because she she didn't call me back and I didn't have a, politi- a, a, a politically expedient way of quitting. I said, well, I'll just show up tomorrow and I'll figure out a way to quit tomorrow. And the two days ended up being, I don't know, five or six years. Wow. So what kept you going those first few months being on the job and not knowing anything? I mean, were you just kind of taking it day by day or what made you stick through it? A few things. I think when you know absolutely nothing, and then the next day you know one thing, you, you feel like you, lo- <laughs> you know quite a bit. You know, it's just sort of like I really have nothing to hang on to here. I'm completely lost at sea. And then on the second day, you really are able to wrap your head around something. At least it, it steadies you. It gives you your sea legs a little bit. It gives you a little bit of confidence that maybe you will be able to figure this out. And then it's just a sort of normal operation of life, which – you know, anything that's terrifying becomes somewhat less terrifying the longer you stare into its eyes. And after you know, day two, day three, day four, you become somewhat desensitized. You, the adrenaline subsides as well. You are learning things, so you have a bit more of a lexicon, and you and things people are saying to you are actually landing, as opposed to saying to someone like, "Okay, you just said a sentence to me. I didn't understand eight of the words in that sentence." That yeah. goes away. And so it does become easier. And then when you start to get into actual projects and you start doing actual producing and actual creative work, then it actually there's parts of it that are fun. And so it gets cut with some of that as well. So over time, it just became easier and easier. Hmm. What were some of the hardest lessons that you learned or those first couple of projects you worked on? And are you still applying any of those lessons to your projects now? I think the most important lesson was communication and particularly as it related to talent directors. I remember the first talent phone call I ever had, I gave a relatively uncontroversial, what I thought was thoughtful note. And the director who was actually a very nice and lovely person um, responded by saying, I'm not going to take fucking notes from a lawyer. Now, mind you, I was no longer a lawyer. I wasn't uh, on that phone call as a business affairs person, I was on that call as a producer and I was on that call to add some measure of creative contribution. But I, in that moment, noticed that there was going to be a narrative associated with me that I was a lawyer and that I needed to conduct myself going forward in a way to mitigate that concern. 
And then subsequent to that phone call, after having other phone calls and running into other obstacles and walking into other punches, it became quickly evident to me that different talent were going to have different questions about me, different concerns about me. And once I identified that, I also identified that they're not one size fits all. And it's going to be part of my job to understand who the client is, in that case, the director, and put myself in a position where they see me as a facilitator of their ambition for their piece of art as opposed to an obstacle. And I do continue to apply that. And I think that I've gotten a whole lot better at that over the last 10 years, but uh, you can always get, you can always get better. Yeah. I mean, I imagine you use that skill a lot in the production of dogs because each episode is directed by a different, like highly accomplished director That, I understand why you'd say that, and that is true on nine out of ten projects. But on dogs, we had a bit of a cheat code because it's dogs, and everybody loves dogs. Everybody loves dogs, and just the opportunity to tell those stories was so attractive to them. I think they could have absolutely hated me and still wanted to work on the show. Um, I just would have been the cost of doing business, and in, in the communication once they were into the stories and and actually making their individual episodes. Absolutely. You know, there was um, a a good relationship in each one of those episodes, but they they didn't need a whole lot from me. Um, They were just so, so talented and and had such specific visions for the stories they wanted to tell. When you have talent like that working on a show, your job is to just as cliche as this may sound sort of get out of the way. I mean, obviously, yeah, producers facilitate and then they kind of get out of the way. But what do you think a producer brings creatively to to a documentary? Well, I think it's, it's different depending on what the project is. You know, some projects are self-generated. It's an idea I might have and then I bring on people to help actualize it. Sometimes people bring me a project you know, on dogs, I think, for, for myself and, and also Amy Berg, who is my producing partner on the on the show, it was about the front end curation, picking the stories and making the difficult choices to not tell certain stories that we otherwise would have wanted to tell, but really wouldn't have fit into the story matrix of dogs and what we wanted dogs to be. So we had to leave some really special stories on the table. And uh, once we had those stories identified, and then we were able to also pair those stories with the right directors, we didn't, you know, take, if we had six stories we wanted to tell, it wasn't a free for all where we would go to each director and say, which story do you want to tell? We did a bit of front end managing where we'd say, okay, well, we've identified this story, which of the directors we're talking to would be the best fit for this particular story. And for the most part, and that worked out really, really well. And the directors that we thought would respond to certain stories did, and they, they knocked it out of the park on each episode. And then from there, once they were in the weeds of telling those stories, yes, you're just getting out of the way. But if you understand what their vision is and what the ambition is, rather than co-opting their creative process, you just try and facilitate that. And that is sort of like being a fullback, if you're going to use a, a football analogy, sort of just getting out in front of them and knocking those obstacles out of their way so they don't need to worry about them and that they could just be concentrating on their vision and the best possible execution of it. Just talking about choosing stories, your career, I mean, you you can't really typecast you. I mean, you've made 
films about sports. You've made Dogs, which is stories about the relationship between dogs and their owners. You've made a doc about sleep paralysis. I mean, what is the through line in your work and, and how do you choose which stories to take on? Well, I think you hit on it in the right word, in typecast. And being typecast as a producer is something that I was very concerned about coming out of Undefeated. You know, most people would only associate being typecast with an actor, but I think a producer can be typecast as well as only making one kind of movie. You know, Glenn Zipper's only making social action films, or he's only making music docs, or he's only making sports docs. And in the aftermath of Undefeated, I, I, I've lost count of how many sports docs. I was, I was basically only being pitched sports docs. And I went home at night and I said, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm going to be the sports doc guy. And I, I really don't want to be that. I want, I got into this to have opportunities to tell stories and I'm only seeing one type of story. So from that point forward, I had to put a governor on how I filtered the content that was being submitted to me. And I let it be known that I, for a long time, that I wasn't even interested in being submitted sports related content. And after a while, the only meter that I had for considering stories were two things. Uh, one was, was it a story worth telling? And the other one was, is a movie worth making? And those, those might sound like they're exactly the same thing, but they're a little bit different. Story worth telling is, does the story have a character or characters who I feel the audience will be deeply invested in? Does that character go on a journey? And is that journey imbued with clearly identifiable, emotionally impactful stakes? that will in some way be paid off, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively, but will they in one way or another be paid off? And if those various ingredients are there, I think that's a story we're telling, no matter what the content is, sports, music, drama, social action, then the next equation is, is it a movie worth making? And all that really means is, if we put in you know a year and a half of our lives into making this thing, are people actually going to show up to see it? Are they going to click on on Netflix? If it's in the theaters, are they going to you know, pay the $16 to go to the theater to see this and you know, brave the traffic and you know, park their car? And, um, and for some films, you might tick the box of category one, but not so much kick, tick the box of category two. And I try whenever is possible to be able to tick both of those boxes. And when I can, those are films that I want to make. And then I have to also confess that many times I violated my own rule and agreed to produce films that I was not convinced people were going to show up to see. Hmm. But would you ever do a project where it's commercially viable, but you don't think that it's a good story? It, it would be very easy for me to say, no, I would never do that. And I think now I've reached a certain place in my career where the answer is definitively no. But if I'm being honest, I, I, there's certainly a time where if there was a big opportunity, I might have you know, had some measure of willful blindness about that first category because we do need to pay the bills. And if someone's saying, hey, Glenn, you know, we have a project that's going to keep your lights on for the next year and a half and create a lot of other opportunities for you and increase your visibility. But, you know, it's, it's a documentary about subject matter that we don't think you're going to be very passionate about. I probably would have given it serious thought. Uh, fortunately, I wasn't faced with that dilemma. Um, but if I had been, I'm not so sure I would have passed. 
Mm. I mean, do you feel like most of the opportunities coming to you now are ticking that second box and not that first box? I mean, the story, a good story like you described it is a very simple concept, but yet is really, really hard to find. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I see a lot, you know, um, and, and yes, it's rare that all that those necessary ingredients are, are present in, in sufficient quantities to, to make me excited. But that remains the the most critical part of the evaluation for me. Um, and sometimes I'm tempted to work on things just because of the talent that's associated with there are a lot of people I want to work with that I haven't worked with yet. And sometimes they'll come to me with a project that's a passion project for them. But I just don't see those ingredients. And I can't let my excitement for working with any one person prevail over what I think is the most important variable to having a successful and worthy film. Yeah. It's like not getting distracted by shiny objects, which I'm sure is very hard in this industry. Yes. I'm 100% susceptible to it myself. And I, and I do have to do a lot of hard work to, to not give into it at times. Do you think that as you get more experienced in your career, it's become easier? Yes, because you know sometimes when you're when you're earlier in your career and those opportunity those shiny objects present themselves to you, you have this feeling like this is going to be the last time that I'm going to have this opportunity to intersect with this shiny object. And the longer you stick around, the longer you realize that those shiny objects will continue to manifest, and you just need to wait for the one that's right for you. And by the way sometimes you, the, the shiny object will present itself to me and I won't think it has those necessary ingredients, the story worth telling, but that's just because it's not comporting with my taste and what I think is a story worth telling and what, you know, I want the character to be or the journey to be or the stakes to be. And you go to another producer who's completely aligned with that vision and will make an amazing film. You know, you, sometimes you see actors being interviewed and say, what roles have you passed on that you regret, you know, because they ended up being iconic. And I, I always appreciate when the actors say, I don't really regret any of them because, you know, I wouldn't have done what Al Pacino did. Like, I couldn't have created that character. If I did, it would have been something different and probably wouldn't have been that iconic character. And I feel the same way. If the stuff that, that I have passed on doesn't mean that it's not worthy, it doesn't mean that it's not absolutely amazing, very well could have been. I just don't think that I was the right person to get it to that place. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have any advice for documentary filmmakers who want to approach producers like you for a project? What should they do and not do in that pitch? Well, for me, the most important thing is that the director brings something to the table beyond excitement and passion for their idea. I mean, that's hugely important. And I always want that to be part, at maybe the most important part of what they're bringing to the table. But I also want to see that they've gained things out a bit. If, if they have an idea that involves access to a certain world or characters, what have you done to see if you can actually get that access. Are you coming to me because you need me to help with that access? Have you even asked the question yet? Have you even made a single inquiry about what's gonna be necessary to have the, the requisite access to tell the story? Also, 
are there other people out there that you're aware of that are trying to tell similar stories or the same story? Like what sort of intelligence gathering have you done about this? Um, also, who do you want to work with? What does your team look like? What's your availability? What's the schedule? I mean, really be buttoned up. Come to the come to the table with a game plan. To me, that gives me a lot of confidence in the person that I'm working with if I have it that I could potentially be working with if I haven't worked with them yet. Now, I don't expect them to have all these things. And in many cases, they're looking to me to answer, help them answer a lot of these questions. But I at least like to see that they've thought about these things. And the reason that they're coming to me to help to help them with those items is because they've done what they can and they've, re- they've hit a wall, right? Don't just be coming to me to, to fast forward this process for you. so much for listening. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Sky Dylan Robbins is our co-producer. George Itzak is our booking producer. And our original music is by Zach Wright. And Rough Cut is a part of the Video Consortium, which is a creative community of the world's top emerging nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're scattered all around the globe, and we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Milan, Paris, and with many more to come. If you want to join and become a member, check us out at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, go to roughcutpodcast.com. Visit us on Instagram at roughcutpodcast and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, subscribe and rate our show.